Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering how people learn to collaborate. My thought partner is Dr. Zach Dodds, known lovingly around Harvey Mudd, where he teaches robotics and computer science, as Prof. Dodds. He is one of the most vibrant and enthusiastic people I have ever met. He also happens to have been my husband Edward's college roommate, and as Edward likes to point out, has a perfect rating on Rate My Professor. Prof. Dads loves what he's doing, and his enthusiasm for shared exploration and experience is contagious. So join us as we think together about the art of collaboration, problem-solving, and taking feedback with Dr. Zach Dodds. We'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you. The Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from moth events around the globe sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find The Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today we're continuing our Live from College series, which was made possible by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Today, we're at Harvey Mudd College, which is one of the five undergraduate Claremont colleges down in Southern California. My guest is the highly rated and beloved computer science professor, Zach Dodds. We're making a podcast with your professor tonight. He's a legend. I think everyone knows him. They do? Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Um, we all wanted to take the class with him. Professor Dodds was <laughs> freshman year roommates with my husband. Oh, yeah, so when I was an undergraduate, I think for all four years, we lived together. A lot of times when it's come up in our family, who is the smartest person you've ever met? The answer uh, is Zach Dodds. I like it. I like it. Yep. Seriously, Zach Dodds is the smartest person I've ever met. Here's my conversation with the approachable, appealing, and legendary Zach Dodds. So can we just go back? Tell me, when you were 18 years old, did you think you would be a computer science professor? I most certainly did not. Uh, Yeah, thank you for that. When you say (laughs) go back to freshman year of college, I really appreciate it because these are exactly the folks I work with every day, right? Right. And that going back is wonderful. But um, no, I most certainly did not. I didn't have a good sense of where I would find my path and my purpose when I was a frosh in college. And I took many detours, very few of which I feel like were in my control. The first detour, which was a wonderful one, was to be a high school math teacher. And so I ended up majoring in math at college and then also getting my teaching certification and going off for two years and being a high school math teacher. What and courses did you teach, like geometry and algebra? I did. I did. I was in the very small school in Evansville, Indiana, named Evansville Day School. And I taught geometry and algebra. In fact, I taught a whole slate. I think I taught five or six completely different classes to different cohorts. And it was absolutely wonderful. You loved it from the jump. 
I loved it. The job evaporated, which is sort of a nice way of saying um, (laughs) (laughs) that uh, there were new paths to be explored. And so really, for lack of creativity, I was like, well, I know school. I'll go back to school. So I went back to school, and the decision was made for me to join computer science because I applied both to mathematics and computer science. I only got into the computer science schools, and there it is. Uh And I love that story because one thing about 2022 that was less true in 1992 is that students feel a lot of pressure to have the whole path mapped out. And I like to emphasize that that actually isn't the healthiest or sanest uh, approach, as tempting as it may be. It's not even realistic. I no, mean, it's not. All, I always say to people, <laughs> just you just have to know the next right move. That's as far, that's as far into the distance as you need to see. Yeah. But I think sometimes your brother's an MD, My and I think sometimes when you when people talk about passion, they think about something like I want to be a you know a pediatrician, and that does require a lot of foresight. That does require <laughs> like laying down a lot of bricks in the road, and but most other careers unfold in these kind yeah. of funny, janky, zigzaggy paths. So, what do you love about teaching? What I love about teaching are the people I get to work with and the purpose that I try to instill or perhaps sharpen in those people. And there's certainly a continuum, although it's not a zero-sum game, between teaching people and teaching content. And I definitely fall on the former side. So I am more, I'm delighted, in fact, to teach what from the outside might look like the same content uh, again and again because it is so different every single time I get into the classroom because those people are different. And it's the people that I'm there for. And do, you ha- do you do much with your colleagues or is it almost all your life about kids who are 18 to 22 trying to figure out their next great move? <laughs> Happily, I'm at a place where all of my colleagues are close to aligned with precisely that. They all have their own take on it. But in fact, as a result, I do feel like we're all pulling in the same direction. We're all really well aligned in that priority, which is that we're teaching students. We've had a lot of fun talking to people who teach history and literature and philosophy, things that are so squarely, in my mind, part of a liberal arts curriculum. I mean, to be totally honest, I didn't even know if computer science could be taught in a liberal arts school. That's how much it struck me as external to the project of a college education. How do you think about it? That's a really interesting take, and I would definitely say I feel like computer science is very at home in a liberal arts setting uh, with liberal arts goals. Computer science has been said to be sort of the ultimate liberal art because of the amount of plasticity, because of how much freedom one has in shaping the outcomes. And I myself uh, and the institution I'm at, Harvey Mudd, We are all in on the liberal arts education. And what I see as the crux of what makes a liberal arts education valuable is that it is sort of an open field with hopefully helpful and supportive guides in exploring and finding purpose. 
And a professional path is wonderful, but there the purpose is already explored and found and either decided on by the student or imposed by external forces. But I.e. parents? Is that it, could, it could be parents, <laughs> but it, it could be there, there are really strong external forces in 2022 that, the, that students simply, and I think correctly, intuit from the world around. It's the, it's the water in which we all swim. And they're looking around for, okay, what signals am I getting from the environment, from my peers, from all media of all sorts? Those signals are probably even stronger than parents. And those signals are also pushing in a pre-professional way. And a place like this and the kinds of things that I uh, love to do, I think are— at least I try to make them a healthy balance between all of those forces saying, you know, you should pay careful attention to the path you're on, but you also know serendipity is involved. And so you want that exploration and you want that self-determination where it is you, the student, who, along with your colleagues and friends and parents and family, have come to find a purpose that aligns well and thus taps your energy better than an imposed one. Well, it's interesting. My daughter, Claire, is a sophomore at University of Virginia, and she's a computer science major. And whenever we tell people that, they say, oh, my God, she's going to get paid so much money. <laughs> like, that's the assumption, is that actually computer science is one of the most, like, uh, the savviest pre-professional choices you can make, but that's not at all how you think about it. You think about it as, like, a whole new method of solving problems. I do, and I certainly want to acknowledge that it does have that reputation for being a savvy, pre-professional path. And there's some truth to it. it. Computer science is a valuable specialty. And as a valuable specialty, it can be leveraged. And I'm excited for Claire's path. But even more deeply than the excitement for the doors that will open is that it is such a powerful tool set. And she will get so much enjoyment out of using it creatively, out of expressing herself representatively, that that is really the win at a more fundamental level than the fact that it's valued by the forces at play. So to that end, can you make the case for computer science as something that's comparable to writing, the arts, research, like all the other ways that we have of solving problems over the centuries? How does computer science compare? I love the way you've framed that. And for sure, I myself am really a believer that computer science is, in some sense, our era's literacy. And all of those things you mentioned, critical reading, cogent writing, compelling presenting, all of these things are long-term human literacies. But it's exciting to think, what if computing is another means of expression and we, this generation, has the opportunity to tap it better than we ever have before? And I think it fits. In particular, as students encounter computing as a novice, imagine a sort of toddler learning to read or learning to speak it's totally okay for students to be having fun with it for its own sake because it's fun, because communication is fun, because they 
establish idiosyncratic habits or teams, cohorts. And we see in our introductory class that students often find friends they like to work with throughout their required computer science class. And that's absolutely wonderful because as you build up this ability with a new expressive medium, it's that sense of play that is by far the most important. But I do think computer science is a different expressive medium because all those other media, writing and presentation and reading, they're essentially emotive and they're all the more powerful for it. And computer science is not essentially emotive. Humans, we bring that emotion to it for sure, but computer science is essentially executable. And that is to say it is repeatable. And that is different. And so it's not more important, but it's another axis along which people find it compelling and actualizing to express themselves. And I find when they do that without the burden of having to worry about how pre-professionally wise this is, they really enjoy it. They enjoy it just as much as they enjoy all those other of the liberal arts that have been around forever. Well, you know, I talked to Angela Duckworth, and she wrote Grit, and she talked about what an essential component joy is to long-term attachment to a project. Like, that, the there's this either-or scenario that people have set up that's like either you're satisfying your passions or you're contributing to society. And she's saying if you really want to contribute over the long haul of decades and decades of work, which is really the only way to make a— serious contribution, you have to love it or you'll quit. I 100% agree. And I think that, to me, is the essence of why a liberal arts type of education is so valuable because it invites and encourages precisely that kind of thinking. Which path is it that you're going to both have the grit to pursue but also the enjoyment, the love of the task to to get enough out of it that you'll be able to contribute over decades, accumulate a body of experience and knowledge that you're excited about sharing. How much interaction do you have with your students other than in the classroom? I have a lot. Not so much from home, although I'm very close, but because I'm so close, I'm able to be on campus a lot of times, either on my own preparing or working on other projects or for student activities that might be happening on the weekend uh, or Like, do you go to the plays and the lacrosse games? I absolutely do. do. In fact, perhaps the one that is most memorable at this very moment was every year the improv group here at Harvey Mudd College, which is called Duck, um, they have a (laughs) 24-hour improvathon, which starts at 6 p.m. and goes to 6 p.m. the next day. And I now have a tradition of coming for the 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. office hours with Prof. Dodds. (laughs) Somewhere there's a recording of me trying to be improv. At 2 a.m., you go on stage and you do improv. I do. I do. Well, I am. It's, it's actually wonderful because they know that this is just not a realm in which I feel comfortable. And so the improv team, Duck, they are so supportive. They're like, we've got this improv, I don't know what it's called, scaffolding, that is going to make you feel comfortable. And you just sit there and nod and improv whenever you want, but we'll sort of carry the show. Have you ever gotten a laugh? Like, I mean, you oh, get well, for it. Sure, you've had because, some wins. Because. Laughing at you or with? Probably both, (laughs) uh, mostly the the at. But the reason it's okay to get a laugh is because there's so much shared experience in that room. What makes 
this sort of education so amazing is how much sharedness there is. This school in particular, and it's an engineering school, students take five courses a semester, 15 courses in your first three terms, 13 fifteenths you do with your cohort. They all have seen my three-eyed alien mascot. They've all heard these idiosyncratic uh, statements. And so those can always be woven in to, <laughs> to, to, to get a laugh. But mostly it's the laugh of recognition that, yes, in fact, we have all been here in this little postage stamp where the value is each other. Do you feel sad at graduation every year? I feel totally happy. I absolutely love it because it's not that I want to keep these, although we certainly joke with them that they should stay another four years, but I stay in touch well beyond, well beyond graduation and follow what they're doing and try to bring them back and weave their paths back into their alma mater. And so, no, it is remarkable how buoyant graduation is. It's fantastic. Coming up next, we'll drop in on one of Zach's classes and learn what active audiencing means. We'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. This episode was funded by the great people at the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. You can learn more about this fantastic organization at avdf.org. The Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, investing in our common future. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and I'm talking with a truly great educator, computer science professor Zach Dodds, about helping kids learn to collaborate, including mastering the very adult skill of integrating or rejecting peer feedback. We watched one of your classes last night, and it was awesome. And I have some questions. What is the goal of that class? So you visited, and thank you for visiting, our second class, and it's our second computer science class for non-computer science majors. There were some majors in there, but most of that room of about 120 were, were not CS majors. And we found about 10 years ago that half because of curiosity and half because of pre-professional wisdom— Everyone was finding their way to introductory computer science, but that does not mean it's the path for everyone. Instead, our goal was to create a class that wove the sort of habits of mind and skill sets of computing into any discipline, and that is what you joined. So CS for Inquiry is really meant to make students comfortable and confident weaving the power and the tools of computing into whatever path they want to follow. So I'm always super thrilled at the variety, the diversity of majors in that room, which were basically all majors you could mention. Sitting in the front row of Zach's class, I was floored by the careful attention he pays to his teaching moves. He's so excited about what he's doing that he literally runs from one side of the room to the other. One minute he's at the podium, joking with the entire class. Then he's off to the side, focusing on a single student, leaning in and really listening. My universal goal for everyone this evening is to actively audience. When the presenters are presenting, we're going to be giving feedback on your laptops, and that's all totally great. We're going to have a release valve between each talk. But please actively attend to the talk. There's always something you can take away from the project and its experience. Let's give a round of applause for our second presenting. This is going to be the 715. 
Hi, thank you all for coming. I'm Anna Grace, and this is Swam. We're presenting today on our progress. Anna and Swam had an idea about Googling words, which would then generate song titles. This involved many things that I am not actually capable of following, like web scraping, parsing algorithms, and breaking kernels. The larger point was that Anna and Swam were utterly at ease talking about the dead ends and false starts of their project. And that environment is hard to come by. So we're following the greedy algorithm, which Swam will get into more in our progress. We were a little bit too greedy in our approach because the sentence parsing is too greedy. And the reason we did it this way and not changing every possible permutation was we tried that and it, it broke my kernel. So, but we, but now we found a little bit better way right before this. We used combinations instead of permutations. Something that really struck me about the presentations was that they were presenting work that's in progress and that you gave them really clear instruction on how to provide productive feedback. Can you talk about active audiencing? (laughs) I'm a big fan that audience should be a verb more than a noun. In other words, it is that active audiencing that I did ask or implore the audience to sort of take that stance for their colleagues' presentations. And that's enormously valuable. Now, I am selfish in doing this because I'm certainly working with an audience when I'm teaching, and I am very sensitive to what that audience is thinking and doing and feeling throughout. And I want the audience, I want the students to know how sensitive their colleagues are. That's where there's a lot more resonance than with someone that's 30 years older. And then when they're on the other side of the podium, they approach it with a very different mindset and a much deeper ownership, both of the audiencing they've done and the presenting. And and thank you. I do agree with your point. All of the content of the liberal arts has never been freer than it is now. But the interactions are what's enormously valuable. And there's remarkable work done remote as well. But being human, we will always value that kind of informal and sort of accidental interaction that happens when you're presenting to your colleagues in a classroom. And I hope you sense that the students who were presenting were really thrilled because they were sharing messages that resonated with their contemporaries and and they could tell when things landed or didn't, but it didn't matter either way because it was that shared experience, whether the project had made a lot of progress or some of them had not made as much progress, that shared experience is what they will take away and will be valuable regardless of sort of the external measurements that might come alongside. I was struck by how little peacocking there was. Like, nobody was parading around saying, and then I solved this, and then I solved that, and now it is perfect. Like, there was such joy in failed attempts and dead ends, and there was such laughter in the classroom. Like, every time someone said, well, first I tried that, and that totally didn't work, and now I think I might try this next. And then you had this feedback process where people were dumping ideas into some kind of software that you all use so that today— All these kids have ideas about, like, your next right move, which to me, all of that is very anti-competitive. It's so collaborative. And the other thing I wanted to ask about was that you said that people should be idiosyncratically informative. Yes, for sure. What on earth does that mean? (laughs) I'm thrilled that the— 
collaborative focus came through because that's one of our explicit goals. And um, I do agree. I hadn't thought of the verb peacocking. But I do think that active audiencing is in some sense the opposite of that and invites the opposite of that from the presenters. So I have to to re-digest that. But but actually, some of the teams that presented that you saw last night had come to me and said, well, here's what we're thinking. How would you help sand this for us or refine it? And... For each of those, my hope and suggestion was be a little bit more idiosyncratic. Put a little bit more of what made this project valuable for you and what triumphs and travails happened throughout the performance of the project because you want to connect not at the content level but at the personal level. And everyone's doing a project that's different than yours, but they are all having those triumphs and travails. And they're going to connect at that level, that shared experience that the in-person presentations really brought out. I don't know if you remember the one that was titled Google Translate English into Song Title. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That one, it's actually a, a very classic computer science problem if presented in the abstract. But they didn't present it in the abstract. They presented, here's something that Google Translate doesn't do but should, and here's how it links to our Spotify interactions. And they were thrilled to have presented it. And then afterwards, a couple of the folks who were computer science majors said, you know, some of these things that we've encountered would help you. And they said, oh, you're absolutely right. And so it's that kind of collaboration in the community that is what we're trying to draw out. What is Beautiful Soup? Ah, Beautiful Soup is a library that allows students <laughs> to grab any web content and parse it. That is, break it into its component source parts and then do whatever they would like. Essentially, they're remixing web content. I forget which of the projects that you saw used Beautiful Soup. Probably half of them did. And so all the projects are pointing out with one semester of computing You now have the experience, but you don't yet have the comfort and confidence, just because you haven't done it, to assemble anything you might imagine out of the components that are there and that we use every day. I think that's a really cool thing about computer science is that these libraries of code are available to mix and match to come up with a solution for your funny little question. And I see it as the same I mean, it's like a mind, a sharing mindset. It is. It, I thought you were going to say it's a mind meld, which is almost is, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, across the community. But I see it as, as not being essentially different from literature in which there have been threads since the earliest, since Gilgamesh and the Iliad, right? There have been threads, and you just keep remixing these stories. I know. The difference is— It's like archetypal is, themes. Exactly. But the difference is this is all executable. It both detracts from its evocativeness, but it also— adds to the power and shareability because it's executable. And so they're taking these libraries, which are just executable pieces of code that are well-established, well-specified, so they're able to hook in with the behaviors they want, and they're able to remix them and create artifacts that, again, are executable. And so you get the same kind of archetypal narratives, but the libraries are remarkably diverse, and it's it's much more action-based, right? There are transformations happening. There are processes being created even beyond the narratives that we all know and love. Right. It does something. It doesn't feel like something. Narratives also do something. But But, but they create... Narratives create emotions, and these create... Executable artifacts, yeah. Yeah, so cool. Now I want to take your class. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'd actually like to take a bunch of classes at Harvey Mudd, which made me wonder, how do the students with so many courses open to them feel each class impacts the other? What classes have you taken that you've really loved that are different than computer science? Last semester, I took Roman art and archaeology. I've taken Greek myth. I also take a language. I take Chinese for bilinguals down at Pomona. I think it's really cool that we get to have the breadth of so many courses available to us. Has anything you've learned in art and archaeology touched on something that you're working on in math or science? Do those parts of your brain intersect in any way? I think sometimes when we talk about the art and archaeology and the people of the past, I think of it from a mathematical perspective when it comes to numbers and like, you know, building things. It takes a lot of math, especially to make things last a long time and be safe for people to stand in for a long time. Oh, that's interesting. So it's almost like the history of math. Like it's the yeah, applica- yeah. It's early applications of math. Yeah. To make something sturdy enough to last all this time. Yeah. How often are you working with a student or in class when you think something was just said or realized because they're in this unusual mix of disciplines every semester? I think it's so often that it's sort of characteristic or endemic to the overall experience. And I think that this class goes out of its way to help those channels um, be worn, right? To, To help because this class invites, take whatever you're passionate about or whatever you're pursuing for other reasons, personal or professional, and connect it with the tool set we've used here. And I I love that thought that mathematics or perhaps more generally precision is a lasting archaeological artifact. But equally important or more important is communicability because we're all here for a very short time in the grand scheme of things. And um, It's exciting to give people as many channels for communication among their peers with themselves, exploring all of the things that they care about. And that's where I think this class is distinct from the other paths they're taking. And so it's a worthy complement to what they're doing. Because it's just like a new language, and new languages can say new things. Exactly. It's a new language. It can say new things. And students find themselves really enjoying the creativity they get to express as they say those things. And I think it's really important to have early on, a lot of the students in that room were sophomores, to have early on in your experience the opportunity to say new things in a resettable fashion, just to to your point, where there's a lot of trust. Because this course will be over, you'll reset, but that layer of, of sediment in a positive way will be built upon and more experiences will be layered upon. And the kind of um, combination or synergy you're describing will be more and more likely, in fact, will be inevitable as you do that. One of the kids quoted you as saying, Prof Dodds, which they all call you. (laughs) Someone told me you were a legend, by the way, during the break. Prof Dodds uh, says, be greedy. What does that mean in in code terms? (laughs) Computationally, be greedy is take the right next step. Take the right next step, even if globally you could imagine a path where other steps would be righter in the long run. But the truth is... <laughs> Could that be rephrased as fail early or fail fast? Yes, fail early and fail fast. I like it. I like it. I wouldn't even predispose that step to be fail, but there's certainly no harm in doing the failing, as you right. point out. Do um, your way into the solution. But that's just it. Do your way into into the solution because 
all of us humans, we do before we distill. And so it's that experiential foundation that gives us the kind of abstractive power that computing and other precise disciplines that have reproducible or executable facets provide. And um, I absolutely love that. Or as one student once said, you know, (laughs) if it's windy, if you're in a dynamic environment, if it's windy, it's stormy, and you aim at the target, you're going to miss. That is a, the key is to, to help people realize that you think you see the target, but you have to do your way into it. And if you aim at the target in the kind of dynamism in which we live in 2022, you're going to miss because you're presuming the environment is so static that you're going to just follow the path you're seeing. But that's not how it's going to go. The wind will push you left and right. So take the step, adjust your course, and then take that next step. Right. So it's about iterating. It is absolutely about iterating, which is a wonderful computational word. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's uh, I had no idea that I was for so sure. tuned in to your channel. <laughs> what questions can this era's machines answer that other methods cannot? That is one of the reasons why computing is so compelling, because this era's machines are going to help us do a better job of what makes us human versus Uh, other things. We we are certainly physical objects and we are chemical objects. We are biological agents as well. But we are all human and we have most of our identity in that humanness rather than those other forms. And because nowadays software systems are so capable and we're doing our best as a community to help them mimic human behavior— They never will. They will never mimic what it is to be human, and it will sharpen our appreciation of ourselves. And that is going to be the biggest gift of this era's computational efforts. Right. Is that by distinction. Like, I I know one thing. Edward, my husband, told me that one thing that robots can't really do is the things that hands can do. Like, pick up a Cheerio. It's just like, you know, (laughs) it could cost like $5 million to make something that could pick up a Cheerio. True. And that makes you think about your own hand differently. That makes you think, like, God, this thing is really something, isn't it? Like, it could just, I can write with a pencil. I can, like, draw on the sand. Like, yes. this is an amazing little thing that's attached to the end of me. You've, you've found a whole other way in which to see ourselves, which is biomechanically. And it is a remarkable achievement of Mother Nature biomechanically. And I can't say anything to that other than just to be awed with the wonder of it. Because, indeed, we can pick up Cheerios at age two. And it, it would cost much more than that to have a capable Cheerio picking up robot. But I could imagine a path from now until, I don't know, 2050, 2040, where Cheerio-capable robots are a dime a dozen. I could imagine such a path. And even with that path, and and for me, it's actually the sort of cognitive and creative behavior that is more representative. Uh, And nowadays, there are systems that can compose prose and poems that are, with each year, less and less distinguishable from human-composed prose and poems. But what is still different, even if they become indistinguishable, which they're not yet, and maybe they never will be, but even if they do, what's different is that those artificial agents aren't intending something 
by their compositions, whereas the human agents are. And I can imagine uh, we as a community, as a human community, will start to add to that value of the what was human about the intent that created this artifact. This is, in a sense, what the question that I think all liberal arts disciplines All of the liberal arts education invites our students to ask and wrestle with, push back on, and come to their own conclusions on. And so that is why computing is really at home in all of these fields. So I noticed last night in class that a lot of the groups that presented was one guy, one girl. And I was wondering if 33 years ago when you were sitting in a math class at (laughs) Yale, were there many girls in your class? There were some, but there were not many. It was definitely stark, starkly different. Yeah. And I consider that a wonderful outcome of those 33 years. And there have been people, and I like to consider myself one of them, pushing towards an environment in which computing and mathematics and all of the disciplines that make up human nature are pursued by the people that will get the most out of them, that will express themselves most compellingly with them. And it is a wonderful thing last night that I think it was about 50-50 between women and men. Yeah, yeah. You have been here for 22 years. How has the student body changed in 22 years? Like, do you have any notes about patterns? Well, it, it has become much more representative of our population as a whole. We're thrilled that computer science, as well as physics and engineering, all these disciplines that at least stereotypically have been dominantly male and certainly historically have, they're all 50-50 here at Harvey Mudd College, which we are intentional about and thrilled about. And we're working as well with other axes of identity. So we're working with Lots of groups to make sure that in terms of race and ethnicity, we are as representative as we can be as an institution across sexual orientation and across diversity of many other types, including diversity of opinion. So this is the landscape in which we live. It is not what I would call a... um, item to be accomplished. It's simply a process. One of the things that people always say about changing the demographics of any classroom or group is that you'll get a different solution set because people think differently. Do you see that? Or is it more or less like they're more the same than everybody's (laughs) saying? Because sometimes Uh, I wonder if we think that there are these huge distinctions in the way everyone thinks, and then you get them into the classroom and— Interesting. I think what I would say to that, that's an, it's an interesting path to pursue. But I think what I can best say is solution set doesn't really describe what I'm seeking. It's not even what, I, what I'm seeking for my students. So I can't comment on whether it's a more diverse solution set. But I do think it helps the entire group explore that landscape of purpose that their years here in the Claremont community and wherever they might be are really conspiring in a good way to to help them engage with. So I think I think it's a it's a huge win. And and specific explorations. Like do you notice like, oh, there's a whole set of things that twenty two years ago when it wasn't so balanced just never came up in class. And now there's a whole set of things that's like, oh of course, right. As as we change the balance yes. of demographics, we're gonna get more questions and inquiries like this. Yes, I absolutely would say the sort of space that's being explored is different and 
to be honest, I would describe it as much more supportive of all. Mm-hmm. And that's the key difference, and I think that's a win for all. How long will you teach? All right. I've got 20 more years to make it for 42 years, 42 being the preferred integer of computer scientists. <laughs> In fact, I've also promised not just the 42 milestone, but I've also promised all of my students that I'm going to keep teaching until one of their daughters or sons comes and takes the introductory or the follow-up course from me. And so far, that, that could happen anytime. It, I mean, it, you're 22 years happen. in. Like, 22 for years sure. in, it could happen. You probably need about 40 years, though. But it, yes, right. I, it hasn't happened yet. And so I think that I like that both as a challenge to me and a challenge to them. Yeah, you're going to have to stay sharp, <laughs> Zach Dodds. Um, how has your teaching changed? Like, are you much better than you were 22 years ago? What do you not do anymore that you thought in the beginning was a good idea and now you see like, meh? The nice thing about 22 years of experience is that the content that drives things forward, that's our shared canvas on which we're all working, becomes more and more natural. But as a result, that leaves extra cycles, to use the computer science term, extra space psychologically for me to worry about the part I think is most valuable, and that is the interpersonal interactions, both with myself and the students and with the students and each other. And so I would say my teaching has changed. It's changed because I'm able to factor out the content. And the content also keeps changing in a way that helps me bridge lived experiences with my students because it just so happens that this discipline is one that our 20-year-olds know much, much more about in its instantiation than I do. Whereas perhaps I have some insights about implementation and historical arc that they don't, and I'm thrilled to share it. But how it ends up getting to be part of everyday life, every single 19-year-old knows that better than I. And so that is a huge opportunity because they are sharing that, whether intentionally sometimes or inadvertently also sometimes. It's just a fantastic sort of shared exploration. That's the goal. The goal is to both maintain the podium, if that's going to be our metaphor for being the creator of the experience and the sort of active audiencer of the experience, but also to to make everyone realize, you know, we're really on the same side of podium if we're imagining it's not computer science we're exploring, but life. And so I think that I'm in a, f- a field that makes that both natural and I'm fortunate for it. Do you have some students that come to mind who have done surprising things leaving here, things that really somehow are utilizing their experiences in the classroom, but in a way that surprised you? What a wonderful um, thing to think about. There have been lots and lots of students who have taken our era's tool set because it's so new and applied it to the path they're on. We have a number of students who've headed into the law. And right now, in fact, because of the discussions that are either optimistic or pessimistic, there is an enormous amount of activity reconciling technologies that are being built and the sort of societal regulation, the law, around those technologies. And so that has been a, um, an absolutely wonderful set of stories to follow. But for the class last night, actually, it was a student who graduated just last year. In fact, were you there? Did I see? She was holding the, the baby Yoda in the Zoom Oh, image. sure, yes. sure. So 
Sarah Embry. She did pursue computer science, and she is working right now at Meta. But the reason I mention Sarah is because she brings the spirit of that class last night to a place where you might not think it's needed, a computational titan like Meta, but it is needed because the history of the way in which we've thought about this as a valuable specialty rather than actually an expressive literacy is such that these places don't have the kinds of opportunities to do exploratory inquiry or insight building using the very tools that they're leveraging professionally. She was such an advocate for taking this approach as computing as more than just a specialty, as a way in which we can express ourselves to great good, as she might say. Yeah, yeah. When you say this era's tools, Mm -hmm. what are some other era's tools? I would say that the metaphor that comes to mind is computing's been around since, let's say, 1940 or 50, maybe even earlier, but it was something that only the 1%, I'll put that in air quotes here, were in a position to take on for, for lots of reasons. Similarly, I, if I'm going to use another literacy, writing, or perhaps printing, that is mass production of writing, that was sort of a one percenter, it happens that they were sort of clerics and monks and other such folks, activity until the technology enabled more and more people to get their thoughts to a wider audience. And so that would be probably the metaphor I would use, the advent of the printing press, which then in in itself took a couple of centuries before it was widely used, but all to the good, things are accelerated now, and it's only taken a couple decades. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the last question, which has nothing to do with your life as a teacher. There's so many headlines that I feel are specifically trying to scare the hell out of us <laughs> about the ways that computer technology, AI, yep. et cetera, are going to go awry. Mm. So for everyone who's listening, who is absorbing these headlines, what is something <laughs> that people say we should be scared of that you are not? And what is something that people say we should be scared of that you actually are? Thank you for that. One of the things that I see headlines or discussions that have some of that fear is around the use of social media. And that is something I'm not afraid of just because I watch my students, all of whom are very engaged in that space. And I say to myself, this is a remarkable juggling act these students are undertaking. And... I don't think in the history of humankind have we been uh, fostering people who are so sophisticated. The sophistication is remarkable. So I actually consider that more of a— sophistication as demonstrated by the juggling? As demonstrated by the juggling, as demonstrated by maintaining all of the mental models, the conceptual framework of all of the individuals and relationships with yourself among each other. It's really—I don't think there's ever been a time when that has been more intricate, when there have been more layers within which you have to navigate. And to what end, though? Like, is that something that they could use— They will use it for the rest of their lives. We've always used it, but the sort of depths and sets of interactions is a much denser weave, higher thread count. It's just (laughs) incredible. And 
because they're younger, they have all that additional plasticity we're envious of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're remarkably good. Now, does it exact a toll? It absolutely exacts a toll. Life exacts a toll, and this absolutely is exacting a toll commensurate with that intricacy. But my observation is that for all of the tolls it is exacting, and I think that I, as someone who has a little bit more remove from those interactions, can help add perspective, add that indeed serendipity sometimes is going to win out, and that's a wonderful thing. So that's one, at least, that I am less worried about than some of the discussions would would purport. What I'm equally worried about is anything that would undermine sharedness, and in particular, the fact that these systems are getting so good at creating, well, text for sure, but also images and videos that would be indistinguishable from reality is worrying. Now, along with the problem comes the opportunity for a solution, and I see that there are opportunities. They're being pursued right now for sort of establishing the provenance of a work or an image or prose composition or video that would help people distinguish between what is purely creative and imagined, for good or for ill, and what actually happened with the physical interactions of our universe. And I think that's a distinction worth preserving. So I see sort of a, a battle there. And These will, are the deep fakes. These are, these the, are the deep this fakes. This is the Obama exactly. video where it's like, exactly. did he say that? Exactly, exactly. So that question, did he say that? But what I see, again, that makes me the optimist that I am, or perhaps it's just my way of expressing that optimist, what I see is that the amount of skepticism even though the technology is not there yet, the amount of skepticism among my students is. So they're ready. Whether I'm ready, I guess it probably doesn't matter. But they're ready. And so that's why I'm optimistic. Yeah. Last word on the value of a liberal arts education. Inviting people to explore the purposes that they find most meaningful, that is really a wonderful line of work to be in. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if I've ever met somebody who smiles as much when they talk about <laughs> computer science or their students or their job, period. So thanks a lot for saying yes. Such a joy to be with you. Thank you, Kelly. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Zach Dodds at Harvey Mudd. Number one, serendipity happens. Sometimes decisions are made for us and that can work out just fine. Number two, Let's get the word out now. Mapping out your entire life path in advance isn't healthy or sane or realistic. Number three, great teachers don't teach courses. They teach people. Number four, new languages can say new things and solve new problems in new ways, which means computer science is our era's literacy. Number five, joy is an essential component of grit which is an essential component to contribution. Number six, audience is a verb. Number seven, shared experience of triumph and travail beats external measurements every time. Number eight, first we do, then we distill. Number nine, Cheerio picking up robots are coming, but they'll never have human intention. Number 10, Though it exacts certain tolls, juggling and maintaining the mental models that are required to keep up with social media is actually a super skill. Number 11, 
What worries Zach Dodds? Deep fake videos, images, and text. Number 12, what lets Zach Dodds sleep at night? His students, their creativity, their ability to collaborate for the greater good. I want to thank Professor Zach Dodds and everyone at Harvey Mudd College who helped with this episode. Of course, I want to thank the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation's Investing in Our Common Future. Thanks also go to the small but mighty Kelly Corrigan Wonders team. That's technical producer Dean Kateri and executive producer Tammy Stedman. Please join us on Friday for another For the Good of the Order and on Sunday for another episode of Thanks for Being Here. In the meantime, I'll see you on Instagram at Kelly Corrigan. Don't you want to know what greedily means? I love all these words that they're, I know. they're throwing out. Like web scraping. That's like, mm-hmm. And I love uh, it's a feature, not a bug. Sure. Mm-hmm. Like as concept, I think that would be my, my band name. <laughs> <laughs> Middle age, it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.